Welcome to the Book Moth Podcast with me, Francesca Docker, where we discuss literary issues in today's academic landscape. Today, we will be talking about Scottish garlic, its origins, influences, and application to modern day society. With me is Dr. Peter Mackay from the University of St Andrews, who's won multiple awards for his studies in garlic, including the Donald Meek Prize for Garlic Literature. In 2005, he published his first collection of garlic poetry, placing him on the long list for the Saltire Scottish Poetry Book of the Year, and has since gone on to be a broadcaster on BBC Three. Well, it's lovely to have you on today. Um, And I'd just like to start a bit by looking at Gaelic itself. Um, So in one of your essays, you describe Gaelic as being very liminal and flexible. How different would you say that Gaelic is from other languages and what gives it um, this malleability that can then be transferred to ones like poetry and uh, literature? I wouldn't necessarily say that Gaelic's different to to all other languages. Each language has its um, strengths. Each language has its weaknesses, perhaps. There are different instruments you can play in different ways. Um, With Gaelic, one of the fun things about it is that in poetry, say, you tend to rhyme on vowel sounds rather than on consonant sounds. And so you've got this huge and nuanced... um, sense of, of a musical instrument that you can play to have these long A sounds or short A sounds. And quite often you'll find in all the Gallic poetry as well, every, the whole poem just rhymes on one sound. And so you know you're going to have this A, A, A rhythmic quality that comes through it um, at the end of every line and then with internal rhyme as well. The, with the, the language itself, um, it, it's one of these into the, because if you do poetry, if you write poetry, you, you're almost always going to do quite a lot of um, dictionary work, one at one point or the other. And with Gaelic, it's almost a language that doesn't have as many dictionaries as we could do with. We don't have an etymological dictionary. So there's always this slight fuzziness with definitions that if you go to Dwelly's dictionary, which is perhaps the most famous one, every noun and we have masculine and feminine nouns, um, we'll, we'll have five or six different meanings. And then you get to play with the ambiguities within the meanings of, the, of these nouns and um, whatever you're writing. Great, yeah, that, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, and I think um, sort of having that freedom to experiment with those different sounds that I suppose you may not have access to in English is obviously, um, you know, you can really experiment around with them. Um, and I, I believe you've written your own book of poetry um, yes. in Gaelic. Um, could you sort of explain a little bit about that and kind of how you've managed to take some of those um, traditions and put it into modern verse? Well, so I've got two books and a pamphlet of my own work as well, and I do a lot of translating from Gaelic into English as well. Um, and so, well, there are various different ways of looking at it. The, my great uncle was a, a village poet, as I know in Gaelic, a bard ballad, which is used um, quite sometimes negatively, but shouldn't be. It just means you're a poet who's writing within a community and you've actually got an audience to listen to your work. And so um, he, like me, was from the Isle of Lewis in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland in the Northwest um, and was known by um, the, the name Fishwell the Glen, the, the Traveller of the Glens. And he wrote lots of police poems and love poems and he wrote one fantastic unrequited love poem and then went to live in Niagara Falls. So there's this sense of immigration. 
what do you do with this when you're, you're writing nowadays? Well, you've got different traditions that you can use. You've got the way I write, I, I'm a bilingual speaker. I was a Gaelic speaker and an English speaker from the earliest days. I've read my modernist poetry, but I've also read the Gaelic song tradition. So you, you can then start to mix things together. You can um, use the different sound effects from Gaelic and different sound effects from English as well. And so say there's a poem that I've got here um, called Logaria. Um, Logaria is when you just talk too much, when you just can't stop, when it's just words teeming out of you. And I use this in this one of the, the lines from my great uncle's poem, which is more real, more even love, my love, my, my young love. And it, to be honest, it's quite cliched. It's really cliched in Gaelic. Um, but that's not necessarily a Gaelic way of looking at poetry because Gaelic poetry tended to use very set forms or traditions with the same images again and again and again. You, um, novelty was ne not necessarily desirable. Novelty was an oddity, whereas what you're doing is speaking to a community for the, um, the kinds of narratives that they might be accustomed to, but putting twists on it. Um, so I tried writing a poem which used one of these lines, and but with a slightly modern um, twist. So this is Logaria, and I'll read it to you just to punish yeah. you all. Right. Right. moike, the and Rominam Erchians Hane Fetbalog Ferkjok, Finner Tarakshin Utkil Marino, Hanache, Logaria. As a Nishamagilic Chale, Marpohor, as Marpetool, Kathatholish Nam Sperin, Avanger Harhild. You were the gold love of my youth, your laugh love like the northern lights in the blue Lewis winter, my love, my young love. If I were a troubadour and not a blunderer and a fool, I'd have given you everlasting love instead of logaria. And now my love is another's, as is right, as should be. But your lights are still in my eyes, glittering across the Kyle. Oh, and the, wow. Gal the yeah. Gaelic's all just about the vowel sounds. It's about chele and chul and duol. And basically trying to find a rhyme for logaria. Yeah. <laughs> com coming up with the, the Gaelic word Fergian. So it was trying to, to fit the, the Greek in with a, a Gaelic oh, vowel. Wow. Yeah, no, that, that's so interesting. And it sounds so beautiful as well when you say it. And then even, even with the translation, I think, you know, sometimes that's quite difficult to kind of, um, you know, sort of transcribe that, that verse into something which also sounds very poetic in English. So I did did you write it in English originally? Because obviously you you were saying about the rhyme scheme, or was it kind of um, reconciling the two the two languages? Most of my poems are written in Gaelic first, and then um, mm. translate into English at some point in the process. So it yeah. might not be when I finished the Gaelic; it might be halfway through, and then the poems diverge. And yeah. so the the English will tend to find its own way and be a little bit different from the Gaelic. But there's some controversy about. The translation of Gaelic because Gaelic is a minority or minoritized language depending on which way you want to look at it. We've got about 58,000 speakers in um, Scotland and in the rest of the UK um, but surrounded by English mm. and so it's this language in the sea of English and English is the, the spread of English has been the re reason that Gaelic has receded to the far northwest of the country why there are 
and the number of speakers went down from 200,000 to 60,000 over the course of a century, basically. Mm. And the question then is, well, if you're translating Gaelic poetry into English and the English is good, are you doing the Gaelic a disservice? Are you saying, well, the Gaelic doesn't need to exist? One of the famous Gaelic poets of the 20th century, Sonny McLean, did his own translations of his work as bare skeletons. So you don't have the full body, you don't have the full flesh, it's just a skeleton that you can imagine mm. the Gaelic from. Um, because I was bilingual from birth, I quite like make, trying to have as good an English poem as possible. But they really aren't um, that one-to-one, word-for-word, line-by-line translations at all. There's always going to be quite a distance between them. Yeah, um, and I suppose even if you think of like Seamus Heaney and the translations that he's done of Beowulf, um, you know, it's not going to be exactly perfect. I almost feel as though it's kind of accommodating for that more modern audience who won't really look into all the different, you know, parts of the language. And also, I mean, it's time consuming, you know, sometimes you just want to read the poem and um, make it make sense in your own language. But I suppose even with that, I don't feel as though you get the whole, whole kind of experience of the poem. And I even think um, Simon Armitage did one um, recently of Sagawin and the Green Knight um, and even with that I mean I was I was kind of looking at his translation and it wasn't it wasn't quite accurate or he'd add sort of rhyme schemes um, to some of the lines in English which you know you, you just couldn't possibly do if you were actually going to try to do something which was very truthful um, to the text itself um, and I suppose on that because you've you know, you, you're obviously writing in the modern era. Do you feel so because it has become kind of quite redundant, I suppose, as a language form, is it much harder to write about sort of modern day kind of things and experiences or is, is it always going to be sort of rooted in, in tradition? And there's a few things there. I think the examples you chose of Beowulf and Green and the Green Knight are, are really interesting, especially Heaney's translation because Heaney was, in that translation, wanting to make the point um, that Beowulf comes from a time in which English was not the dominant language of these isles. Um, And so we we do have a shared Anglo-Saxon heritage that we can all draw upon, but it was also out of a a cultural melting pot when you have different claims on the English language, different different languages being spoken across the island. So his putting of bonds into Beowulf and his use of very specific um, Derry dialect was a way of in some ways foreignizing Beowulf to say okay it, it's, there's more going on there than you would expect, there's a much more complex linguistic history there than any form of say English nationalism might claim as this is a foundation stone of English literature it's not just that if it's that at all um, I think with Gaelic it's not a redundant form at all, the Gaelic can get used to describe, to talk about anything you want to it's a means of communication and so um, in the last, well, this is the, the end of July, 2021. So in the last week, there's been a stushy in Scotland about ambulance um, being written on the side of an ambulance in Gaelic. And you can read it. And even if you don't have Gaelic, it will make sense. Okay, these are the letters A-M-B-U-L-A-I-N-E-A-S. You're going to understand that's an ambulance because it's making this big noise. It's got blue flashing lights. It's carrying sick people anyway. By context, you'll understand it. But there's a lot of resistance in Scotland as well to any level of profile of Gaelic. Whereas for somebody like me and many of my friends and family, it's just the language you use to talk about everything. And you, you, can, you can accommodate any language to the modern world. 
but there does have to be that process of accommodation. And so for some of the, the topics of, of Gaelic, it was um, a full rich language in the 18th century, but it was also one that then came to be dominated by um, religious vocabularies and religious inflections. And so if you want to talk about um, philosophy or high level moral concepts, you tend to fall back upon religious terminology rather than technical um, philosophical language. You could adopt that into Gaelic if you want to, but you have to make these choices. Do you use traditional resources to the language or do you innovate, you create new ones? And there's always going to be that tension in any language. Um, yeah, that's a great explanation of it. And I, I, I think the problem is, is that I suppose in England, we're very used to just sort of speaking our language and um, uh, having this, I, I suppose, quite a sort of Eurocentric or England centric, um, you know, view of, of how language should operate. And I think because our language has sort of globally um, you know, dominated the lexicon of like so, so, so many different countries, you know, it's almost like because we are constantly adapting our language, you can't, you know, you don't always see how actually other languages can do exactly the same thing. Um, and I suppose again, even thinking about like garlic, do you feel as though sort of considering it almost as this like lexical appendage to English is this is this kind of problematic and do you think that it should sort of more be considered on like a global scale um rather than kind of being partnered to it because I I mean whenever I think about say like Welsh or garlic you know it's always like oh in terms of England but I think that's really just because it's um almost like sitting next to it and should we kind of be considering these other you know, the broader cultural context of it as a language. I think that, um, well, English is, is a great mongrel language. Um, it's fantastic at taking resources from other languages and putting it to the, and, and domesticating them as I want to be. And so that the, the huge amount of Greek words, Latin words, German words, words, French words that just get assimilated and become English. Um, or that English speakers don't necessarily need to pay attention to their apparent foreignness. And this is partly questions of power and how successful English was as a global language. And this is a global language, which to be honest, has far outstripped the power of people in England to control it. Most speakers of English now will never go anywhere near England. and might not understand the various dialects that are spoken in England. Um, and I think there are problems there for regional dialects in England, that they tend to get thinned out and washed out. But, but it's also because of the dominance of English, there's this strange habit within Britain as a whole now to view monolingualism as a normal thing. And, and it isn't. Um, bilingualism or multilingualism it would be much more common throughout the world and throughout much of history because to do any trading, to do any form of intercommunity grouping, you will know more than one language. And so all of a sudden, because if you're accustomed to thinking more than one language, well, yes, Gaelic is not just an appendage of English. Gaelic has its own absolutely different worldview. It's got its own attitude to colour, own attitude to landscape, own attitude to religion. And the way that it shapes how you look at the world is entirely different if you want to basically follow the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis that language shapes how, how we look at the world. Um, and it's got an older heritage in terms of literature than English does as well, going back from Gaelic into Irish Gaelic, Gaelic, um, the shibboleths of the pronunciation of the two words, but you've got this continuous thread for 
thousands of years of a literature and a sustaining culture that was not just viewing itself as a neighbor of X, but as a coherent world and a coherent linguistic system and cultural system in itself. And one of the difficulties that we might have now is that you look at the current situation and think that this is inevitable, or this is the only way of looking at how the cultures can or should in interact. But Gaelic is an international language. Um, if spoken in Scotland, Canada, still pockets or families in Australia, New Zealand, um, as well as the long, long connections with, with Irish, with Irish Gaelic. And so we can always make these bridges again. We can always have these ways of speaking to the rest of the world that don't involve the, the, the dreaded Anglo-Saxon. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and I, I, I think that's a really good point that I think we always feel as though language, you know, if you have a big global language like English, it's always going to be around. But of course, you know, languages change and with different political situations, you know, you can find these things. You have this upsurgence of um, of a particular language and things aren't always stagnant and they're always changing. Um, and obviously there was this movement, the Scottish Gaelic Renaissance, um, which saw poets like um, Ian Christian Smith, uh, Derek Smith Thompson, um, and Sully MacLean reviving the language through verse. Um, do you believe that this resurrection was achieved by these poets? Um, or was it really just reserved to that kind of literary sphere and didn't really expand beyond that? Or, um, I, I don't know what your, your kind of thoughts were. Um, there... This, there are two or three ways that can be, this can be looked at and they have to be more or less separate. The, so there was a Scottish Gaelic literary renaissance. There was a Scottish renaissance that happened just a little bit, bit before that. And there was the Irish literary revival that happened a little bit before that. Um, and partly the, the, the comparison with Ireland is telling because the Irish literary and cultural revival led to the creation ultimately of the Irish Free State and then the Republic of Ireland. You had um, assertions of cultural nationalism leading to political nationalism with quite a lot of bloodshed in between. And in Scotland, there was a desire for a similar Scottish renaissance from the 1920s onwards. But with, um, I think, the, the examples of the Easter Rising and the Irish Civil War and War of Independence and Civil War fresh in the mind. So it was tended to be limited to discussions of culture and limiting to culture. In Scotland, it was large to do with what languages represent the nation. Should we stop? or whoever that we is, writing in English and writing Scots or Lalans or Doric, or should we write in Gaelic? Is that an authentic language of a nation or not? I think one of the advantages in Scotland is by having three languages, you go, well, nothing's truly authentic. There's always going to be this conversation back and forth. It's better to have a multilingual, diverse sense of a nationhood rather than anything where you're starting to look for purity or authenticity. And back in the 1920s, 1930s in particular, this was obviously um, weighted in European terms if you're looking for a pure folk. The Scottish Gaelic Renaissance, there's usually five figures that are identified. So Arlie MacLean, um, Derek Thompson, Ian Crichton Smith, George Campbell Hay, and Dolt Macaulay, all of whom were university educated and started writing in the 30s, 40s, or 50s. And they modernized Gaelic literature to a huge extent. They brought in um, examples from 
um, the modernist poetry of the English language, Eliot, Pound, um, through Herbert Greer's in particular, and examples, especially through Hay, from lots of languages. Hay spoke Swedish and Danish and Greek and Arabic. And so he was just this magpie that pulled, them, pulled lots of um, different examples in. They were crucial because at the time they were writing, there was a sense of crisis because of the decline in the numbers of speakers of the language, uh, the poverty of the hands and islands, the number of people who died in the First World War and then in the Second World War, and a sense that a way of life was absolutely on the, the limit point, on the edge of um, going out of existence. And much of the tension of their work is the sense of, well, maybe this is the last hurrah of a culture and a language. This is an attempt to um, fit it into the modern world and the modern world into it. Um, to, to try and absolutely bring it back from, from, from a brink. Has that worked? Well, the language is still here. People are still writing in it. Is there still the sense that the language needs to be brought back from that brink? Yes. Um, weirdly, there is another crisis moment at the point at the moment, partly because of the pandemic. And it's partly because of the realization for many people in the, the country that, oh, the Northwest of Scotland is really quite nice and house prices are quite cheap there. And so all of a sudden you will have an influx of um, people wanting to live in what is a beautiful part of the world, but quite far away from London. And it's only now with the technology that we have that maybe you can consider living in the Outer Hebrides and being able to do an office job from Edinburgh or Glasgow or London. And this has huge, um, a huge impact on the continuity of culture the continuity of groups of people who are living in particular places. Because if you are um, 18, 25, 30, 35, and you can't afford to buy a house in the island that you grew up in, you have to leave. And this means that you have people who speak the language just cannot get work there, cannot get homes there. And we're again at one of these points where communities, the actual communities where the language might, is spoken are at risk of extinction. Yeah, um, and I, I, I think I, you know, maintaining these languages and making sure that they survive. And um, yeah, I, I, I agree with all that you say there. And, you know, um, I think through literary forms, we can kind of keep them alive and keep people reading them. And I, I even think with the BBC, um, they've made a huge effort to keep, um, you know, Gaelic at, at the forefront. Um, I think you, you, you wrote at BBC um, Scotland for a while. Can you tell me a li little bit about your, your experiences there? So I was a broadcast journalist and TV news producer mm -hmm. for um, BBC Avapit, which is the Gaelic channel, and BBC Radio and Gale, which is the, the radio channel, for a couple of years. And I still do um, various um, hits for, for them every so often talking about literature and stuff like that. Um, it's very hard to understate how important it is to have the ability to talk about your own um, community and your own culture and your own language in your own language, to, to have this profile, a TV channel that reflects from the youngest age so that you know you have a child who is a year old, they will be able to watch cartoons in Gaelic. It is a legitimate language. It is something that has the same kind of status as English does by having the, not just a TV channel, but the BBC imprimatur on it. Look, this, this is a real thing. The state has approved of this. It's okay. Um, and that does work psychologically and it's important psychologically. The, 
the news station that I worked for, my main job was um, what's known as reversioning. So I do international news stories um, and try and, especially when I was working, there was lots of stories from Libya or Iraq um, and quite a few from the US. And I would be A, finding Gaelic speakers who could speak with some level of expertise about them, voicing over the clips and putting them together myself, um, and then trying to find ways of making them directly relevant to a Gaelic audience. And it was it's important not just that you are speaking about your own part of the world in your language, but you're speaking about the globe. The language can encompass the globe. The language can has the resources, it has the skill, the wit, the, the depth to be able to talk about the um, rebel troops attacking Benghazi, just as a normal thing to be doing, rather than to be do, as an artificial thing to be doing. And so the creation of the Gala TV channel was hugely important in symbolic terms, but also in practical terms of getting um, highly paid highly educated jobs within the language that don't involve teaching. Yeah, yeah, no, and I I think the work that you're doing there is um is fantastic and hopefully it will, you know, really inspire other people to take on the language um and you know start learning it. I think like like you were saying from a young age, getting um, you know, kids involved in it through cartoons is, is such a fabulous um way of doing that. So thank you for um coming on today um it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you um and yeah it's it, it, it's been great and I've I've learned so much um about Gaelic I knew a bit before but um you've definitely enlightened me on a few few different points if you need any more go and read the poetry of Sorley McLean listen to the songs of um Capra Cayley and Kathleen McInnes and you can learn Scottish Gaelic on Duolingo Great. Great. Thank you. Next week, I will be joined by Mary Fairclough from the University of York to discuss electricity and how it sparked a revolution politically, socially, and in the world of literature. Thank you. <laughs>